0: Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Pacwa. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Our guest tonight is a popular author and internationally renowned speaker on Catholic spirituality, on marriage and family life, and apologetics. As a Catholic deacon and a black man with a professional background in law enforcement, he also has an interesting set of perspectives, an important set. And he has experiences to back them up in order to draw for a serious discussion about issues concerning Black Lives Matter movement, critical race theory, and liberation theology, all of which he tackles in his newest book, which is called Building a Civilization of Love a Catholic response to racism. So please welcome Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Deacon, it is so good to see you again.
1: Thank you, it's great to be with you as always, Abuna.
0: Yeah, thank you. You know, the issue of racism is obviously something that is going to have affected your life, as it does every, that's one of the things. It's not an issue about black people. Everybody's affected if you are a racist if you are a victim of racism or if you're saying what's going on you know you don't understand it still has an effect and an impact talk first of all about that aspect Now, what do we mean by racism
1: yeah and and that's an important distinction we need to make between racism and prejudice because what's happening in our culture today those terms are getting conflated Yes, And so whenever there's a negative interaction, it's always labeled as racist. And so I thought it was important to start by saying, well, wait a minute, we have to separate racism from prejudice. So the way I define it is prejudice is making a preconceived notion or judgment about someone without any objective knowledge or subjective experience. And racism is prejudice, as I just d- defined it, with the added piece the reason why I believe this, or why I just said this to you, is I believe my race is superior to your race, Yep. okay? So, so here's, a, here's the example I use in the book. <laughs> at a parish mission, uh, a guy came up to me, he found out I went to Notre Dame, and he said, oh, you went to Notre Dame, what position did you play? <laughs> now, <laughs> he, he made an assumption, he looked at the size, Notre Dame, he said, oh he must, he must have played football, right? That's a prejudiced statement, right, based and, out of ignorance. And he was being positive he would yes. have liked to have met exactly. a Notre Dame football player. So, so it wasn't But he ma- didn't. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't Mm-mm. anything. Now, people say, that's racist. Well, it's not. In order for it to be racist, he would have to have meant when he said it. The reason why I just said that to you is I believe that people of color aren't intelligent enough to get into an academic institution of that caliber, and the only way that someone like you can get to a place like that is with athletics. Yeah. That would have been racist. Yeah. But that's not what he meant because when he found out that I had an academic scholarship and never played football in my life, he <laughs> went, "Oh, oh, Deacon, I'm sorry. I, you know, it, it was, it, it was okay." Now, what he should have said was, "Oh, you went to Notre Dame. What did you study?" Because that's what he would have asked anybody else.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And. You know, this is, uh, you know, you and I have known each other a very long time, and, you know, when we first met, you were one of my students, and you talked about how you had that academic background. So we already had established a relationship, and we, you know, whether you went to Notre Dame or not, um, it was just that this is your background Mm -hmm. that I was interested in as it affected what we were studying in theology. So that would be, you know, I I think the the normal thing. And that's a a very important part. And I think also with prejudices, we have to realize that people are prejudiced about a lot of different identities. Yes. Jewish people experience prejudice. Most of them are not African-American or African descent. There are Jews from Africa. But most of them are not. So it's not about uh, uh, African background. It's about the religious background. Or you can be prejudiced about Catholics. We get that. You can be prejudiced about Protestants. You can be prejudiced about all kinds of things when you identify yourself to separate yourself and make
1: yourself different. Exactly. When I first started coming here, uh, I think my first series was 2005 with EWTN, uh, I thought, wow, well, I'm coming to the South. Everybody here must eat shrimp and grits. Because I'm, that's what I've always heard living in the North that people, and I come down here to find out that, gee, not everybody likes shrimp and grits. No, sometimes you know, it's that, like that
0: cheese grits. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So so that was a prejudice notion that I had about people in the south It wasn't malicious or anything, but I just it was just prejudice because it was based out of ignorance I had no experience really of anyone just what I saw on television what I heard and that's how we get these prejudices By the way, I make this argument in the book because we're not born Racist or prejudiced, and I think anecdotally we see that when children playing mm-hmm. right you see three four-year-olds five-year-olds on the playground They're not looking Black or white or Asian or Hispanic, you know, they're just kids playing. They don't care what they're, right? They're just playing. But what happens over time? We begin to hear jokes. Uh, you see things on television. You see things on social media. You see things about certain race of people, movies, the way people are depicted. the way, And, and, and you begin to think, because especially if you don't have much interaction with people of color, Bingo. you start to think, oh, this just must be. The how they are how, again not angry and malicious, but you're starting to build up these these prejudices, these um, these uh, uh, preconceived understandings and ideas about people or races or whatever it may be, and then when you finally meet someone, you know it kind of because it's, it's a great example. So my freshman year and I remember back in those days, there's no internet, there's no social media. You're the, old. Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you got a letter that said, here are, are your roommates, their names, and where they're from. So you couldn't look it up, you couldn't, right? So I, I get to the room. I lived in a triple that year, and I was the first one in the room. So I said, oh, I don't want to unpack anything. I want to wait till the other two guys get here. We can figure out what we want to do. So as I'm waiting, I pull out my guitar, and that was 1984. And so Van Halen's 1984 album came up. So I was learning Panama, one of the songs on that record. So I have my guitar. I'm out older.
0: I, I don't even know that. Right, right?
1: <laughs> so I, I have my guitar out and I start playing. And one of the guys walks in the room. So he looks at me and goes, which one are you? Because remember, all there was a letter with names and, and where you're from. I said, I'm Harold. He goes, you're black. <laughs> and I went, "Really?" Oh. <laughs> I went, this is not good. That's his first thing. You're black. And then he saw me with my guitar. He goes, what are you playing? I said, Van Halen. He said, black people listen to Van Halen? And I'm like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> this is. And then my first impression was like, this is going to be a rough year. But what what happened during that year? We got to know each other. The, see, the thing is, he was from an affluent suburb of New York City. He's never had any really interaction. He, had, he said he had one black kid in this high school that wasn't even in his class. And he, so he never had interaction. Now he has to live with me. And all he knew was what Experiences he had on television and whatever he learned from his friends about people of color. So now he has to live with me. But during that year, we got to learn from each other, get to know each other, um, and uh, and we became friends. We roomed together the next year, um, and then after graduation, he was in my wedding, I was in his wedding, uh, and it was and, and we're still friends to this day. It's a yeah. beautiful experience. I think
0: that is one of the key factors, uh, and it's one of the the odd, odd things that, um, so often people don't know each other, neither black, uh, blacks known whites, whites known blacks, yet alone Asians and other groups, uh, that you just hang out. You, I generally find with, because here in, the, I'd say in Birmingham, uh, the interaction with black folks, white folks is pretty much part of normal life. It's just, everybody's here, you know, and you just work together. And it's about as different here to be black or white as it is to be Italian or Polish in my neighborhood.
1: Exactly. That, that's about yep.
0: it. And I have more in common with the other guys because they're guys and we share those experiences than the differences in terms of our background. So th- this is something that is uh, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, and, and to me, it is fun, and including the differences, because mm-hmm. being guys, you, you rib each other. That's you just yeah, and, at each other, and that's just part of life. And I, and I life. think
1: that's something that we need to better appreciate. When you look at the universe, when you look at nature, God created such an incredible richness and diversity exactly. within nature, within the universe, and we're still continually uh, um, discovering and uncovering. The, the depths of, of the richness of, of this world and of our universe. And and it's the same thing with people. Exactly. It's the same thing with people. Exactly. It's a wonderful diversity of language and culture, especially traveling around the world, as I have the 31 different countries, to experience different people, to experience their culture, their food. Their, it's just a beautiful thing to get to know individuals and people. Yep. You know, And that really helps... To break down these walls of, of prejudice and racism that some people may have.
0: Yeah, when when my buddy Al Pavins' grandmother from Italy made cookies, I was there. <laughs> but he'd be at my place when my mom made kalachki. You know that uh, th- th- yeah. the differences of uh, of that was just part of the way we grew up. Now here's the, there are two problems I, I think. Uh, A there is b- bigotry, and And some of it is based on race. And what you see is, uh, when you look back on history, um, for instance, in the Roman Empire, a third of the population was slaves. They were enslaved. But 95% of them, if not more, were white. Slavery had nothing to do with race. And the removal of slavery by by the influence of the church had nothing to do with race. You know, that that wasn't the issue. But in the modern era, as slavery uh, from Africa, the uh, Atlantic slave trade started, and this is part of my theory, all the Europeans that were engaging in the slave trade usually with the Turks. It was the Arabs and the Turks who had been doing the slave trade for 200 years before the Europeans started it. And when the Europeans, uh, the, the Christian Europeans started it, they had to come up with some false justification. They knew slavery was wrong. The church taught it. And they came up with theories of racial inferiority. That's what... Is part of my sense, and the second issue, and this was confirmed by Charles Darwin, you know, and others. Darwin saying that blacks are a race in between, or a species in between the ape and the human being. You know, that was you get. Well, the great Charles Darwin said, "This is the way it is." He confirmed that. But the second thing is the politics of using racial difference. To make sure that you keep these groups going at each other. Meanwhile, I'm in the
1: background making money and getting power. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things I draw, well, a couple of things. First of all, about the slavery issue, I do talk about that in the, in the early chapters of the book, and I yeah. have to, because yes. some people will say, well, look at St. Paul. You, you, you Catholics, you Christians, you justify slavery. Look at St. Paul says, slaves be obedient to your masters. And, and in fact, mm-hmm. that's what slave owners use to justify. They use the Bible to justify how mm-hmm. they were treating mm-hmm. uh, uh, black slaves in, in this country. And so what I have to show is what, when you say slavery, what do you mean by slavery? Mm-hmm. Right? So I look at the Old Testament, particularly the book of Leviticus, that talked about about six different types of slavery. Right. And we know for a fact that St. Paul was not talking about chattel slavery because it's very, very clear in the Word of God. God says, you are not to enslave other people, even your enemies, because you were once slaves in Egypt. So it made it very clear that it could not possibly be that type of slavery mm-hmm. that St. Paul was talking about. But see, when people hear slavery, they're thinking in the context of what you just said, Father, mm-hmm. about what happened in this country. Mm-hmm. But... You look at other types of slavery, for example, indentured servitude. So you have a family that has maybe three, four kids, and they have another child. They can't afford to to feed that child, and so they give that child into indentured servitude to another family. Now, that child, you know, would grow up in, in seven years, you know, was the jubilee year, the slaves were released, but they also had rights. They could become, at the end of this, the, that, that time, they become members of the family, you know, so, and they had rights during that time so they couldn't be abused. It wasn't what people think slavery is when they mm-hmm. think about that word. Also, um, you know, right now, if you have... Uh, uh, low-level crimes, you know, you see the printers the, the in the orange jumpsuits picking up garbage at the side of the road. Mm-hmm. They also had that uh, as well in the Old Testament. They called that slavery. Right. So <laughs> you just can't put a blanket statement around that word without understanding the context which St. Paul was speaking.
0: One other key part, especially in the Roman Empire where Paul was addressing it to a, a, a Greek-speaking community. The Romans had amazing success from the third century forward in conquering people. When they conquered Italians, they mostly worked out ways to incorporate them into the Roman Commonwealth. But when they started conquering the rest of the world in uh, Carthage and uh, in Greece, in Macedonia, what's Asia Minor, uh, You know now Turkey, uh, and the Middle East, they would either kill everybody, or they'd kill one section and keep the rest as slaves. The, al- the only alternative they had was to execute everybody. And so a- the reason there were a third of the population enslaved, they had conquered the world. Mm. And they had enslaved so many people. And it really messed up their society to do that, by the way. This is not a good policy. Uh, It um, ruined their economy in Italy because people had so many slaves, the poor had no jobs. And so that was, uh, uh, and they all had to go on government welfare that the other countries were sending taxes to Rome to feed the Roman population who couldn't get a job because they already had slaves. It was uh, an economic mess. And that was another kind of slavery, the war mm. booty right. slavery. I, I address that in the book as well. You're exactly, you're exactly right. And that, that's what he's addressing. But
1: he worked for the freedom of Onesimus. That's right. Yeah, and I also talk about that in the book as well. See, this yeah, is... Exactly right. And, and to your second point about race as a vehicle to power, uh, I also address that in the book as well. Because one of the things that I did is I looked at the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now we all know about I Have a Dream speech and all that, and I really honestly never delved much into his work before, mm-hmm. but when I read Letter to a Birmingham Jail, in a Birmingham Jail, when I read his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, I was like, this guy gets it. He mm-hmm. totally gets it. And so what's happened since his death, because um, he was able to bring people together, uh, and, you know, and, and so since his death, we've had an emptiness, a void, a vacuum. And that's, that vacuum is being filled with people and organizations. It's like a Trojan horse. Race is on the outside, but really on the inside, there's an agenda that has nothing to do with race. Yep. It has everything to do with pushing another agenda.
0: Which is mostly a Marxist agenda. I want to give one of the quotes you have in your book from Martin Luther King Jr.'s acceptance of the Nobel Prize for peace, uh, which itself was... Uh, you know, a powerful experience in this country, that he had been working so hard for racial justice, for African Americans to be able to vote and live where they want. You know, th- this was remarkable. Well, he won the Nobel Prize, and, uh, and on December tenth, nineteen sixty four, he he said, sooner or later. All the people of the world will have to discover a way to live together in peace and thereby transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. If this is to be achieved, man must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation foundation of such a method is love and that gets at the core of the title of your book yes creating a culture of love you're continuing on what he said and what pope saint john paul and pope paul VI had said about creating a civilization of love
1: yes exactly first john 4:16 god is love and he who lives in love lives in god and God lives in him. So we're not talking about, you know, the groovy type of love that Phil Collins <laughs> spoke about or anything like that. Uh, this is a love that, you know, the agape love, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, uh, hesed, you know, that, that self-giving, self-sacrificing love, the, the outpouring, the complete gift of self, right? That's the foundation of covenant relationship. You know, that's the kind of love that we need to, that's going to overcome racial division, you know? Um, but the, the, the problem is, when you don't look at it that way, when, you, when, when I look at you, uh, Father, uh, I don't want to see white first, mm-hmm. right? Now, I want to see you. And because I'm able to see the image and likeness of God in you, mm-hmm. I'm now able to appreciate all the other things, your, your, your Polish background, you know, your incredible knowledge of, of Scripture and Biblical language, well, and many other languages too, besides the Biblical languages, and all the other things you bring, because now I'm looking at you the way God sees you. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you through God's eyes. And then that uh, opens my heart, to allow me to appreciate everything that you bring to the table now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm trying to achieve in the book. But, I, but, what, but what is going to happen, what I anticipate, is that people will look at the three chapters on uh, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter movement, and liberation theology, and say, well, that's the focus of the book. And it's not. Uh, and, and the only reason I bring those things up is because people in the church are trying to say, hey, these are three ideologies that we can incorporate to help ameliorate... The, you know, racial division. I'm like, okay, well, le- let's be fair. You know what? Instead of saying, well, I'm just going to quote what this person says and that person says, I want to find out for myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I studied those three things in depth and wrote about, okay, is there something here that we can use that mm-hmm. will help us take a brick out of the wall of, of racial division? Mm-hmm. And that and that was my approach.
0: Yeah. Here's, you know, I, I like to go chronologically because. Before Black Lives Matter or critical race theory started, you had liberation theology. That goes back to the 68, uh, when a guy named Miranda, who, like the other liberation theologians, they came from Latin America, but they learned it in Germany. They didn't learn it in Latin America. They had all done their doctorates in Germany and then brought it to Latin America. What's the, what do you see going on in liberation theology?
1: So liberation theology, um, basically, we have to liberate ourselves from sinful structures. Mm-hmm. You know, um, John Paul II talks about uh, social sin and personal sin, Right. And, but he, he talks about both of them in, in the context of each other. Mm-hmm. What's happened with Liberation Theology kind of separates the personal sin from the social sin and focuses on the social sin. So in order to affect change, uh, you have to change systems, structures, institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's where you start. And I, I disagreed with that because Jesus came to the same people, not institutions. Yeah. Um, and so you have to, to, in my view, you have to start with the person, because people make up institutions. So once you, you start to look at minds and hearts and work on that personal perspective, now you're able to, to, to change structures. And, and the way they look at changing structures, sometimes they, violence is okay in order if you wanna change a structure and, or tearing down the walls of, of division. And what that does, it actually makes things worse, not better.
0: Yeah, I was in Lima, Peru, back in 1975 and I was just, you know, so embarrassed at this priest who in the priest council, you know, of that archdiocese had spoken against allowing Mother Teresa and her sisters to come to Lima. And his reason was they're going to help the really poor. And that'll delay the revolution. They'll take the pressure off of poor people by helping them now, and they won't rise up and revolt. And we need to make sure that they get so miserable that they revolt. And I, I heard about this when I went to their place. They were picking up a guy with no legs out of a garbage dump. He'd been, he had no legs, and his family threw him in a garbage dump, and he couldn't move. So they picked him up and fed him and cared for him. That's what's going to stop the revolution? Picking babies out of the garbage. They would go to the garbage dump every day, just like the early Christians would do in Rome, picking up babies that people had thrown away. If saving them stops your revolution, your revolution has a problem at its moral core. And that would be, you know, it's that kind of thing that I saw justification of you know pain for a political purpose that I didn't yeah. the other thing too uh, and this was in the document on liberation theology that the uh, Pope well at the time Cardinal Ratzinger wrote that it pits groups against each other that's the Marxist approach that you have like in that story You have to have this group against this group. And only in the conflict. It's picking up Marx's, you know, thesis and thesis
1: uh, clash. Yes, and and that's the hermeneutic for change. Tension, conflict, and struggle. Right? So it goes back to the Hegelian dialect. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, For folks who don't know philosophy, this guy named Georg Friedrich uh, Hegel had said you have to have one force and then... Op, the, the thesis another force comes against Antithesis. it and then as they fight it out yes. they come up with new synthesis a, and then a new synthesis becomes the yeah. new thesis right then you keep and it, this is how that's he, right. all of history develops well there's some of that in history yeah but you know to
1: use that as the way you should change yes that's the problem that's the problem and that's that's the thread that's woven in the fabric of liberation theology, critical race theory, and black lives matter. They have all that same kind of Marxist element uh, that, that underpins the ideology behind the, their approach to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, I, I criticize it, not, not, not for the sake of criticizing it, but remember, I'm approaching this from the perspective, will this help us, those of us in the church, to really fight against racial division to bring people together in harmony, in that hermeneutic of love that uh, John Paul II talked about, that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about, that St. Paul talks about. And, and, and so I looked at them critically, looking at their tenets, not what I think they say. I looked at source documentation to see what they actually teach. And my conclusion is that it, it doesn't help. It doesn't help.
0: And this is one of the reasons, people may remember this famous scene when Pope St. John Paul went to Nicaragua. Oh, he got off the plane? And he got off the plane, and this priest who was a Jesuit priest that had been part of the government, and he started shaking his fist at him. Yep. And the issue was, as a priest, we have to be a priest for everybody. I'm a priest of Jesus Christ, not... This political party or that political party, and that's what he was objecting to. And later on, that's cardinal, I think he, he, I know he left the society because he preferred. He thought his, it was better to serve, to help the government, and rather than as a priest. And we, that's why we priests are not allowed to run for political office.
1: That's right, in canon law. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because yeah. we 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 can't do that. Uh, We can't be for this group against this group, the way politicians would have us. We have to take a little break. We're going to come back in a couple minutes and continue on. We'll talk about Black Lives Matter and critical race theory uh, and see what is the Catholic uh, response to all that. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We are speaking about a really fine and important new book called Building a Civilization of Love, A Catholic Response to Racism. It's written by our guest tonight, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. And you can get it at EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog, uh, where it is item number 5467. 5467. So I urge you to get that given the way that these discussions are going today. You can also find out more about the various kind of work that Deacon is doing by going to DeaconHerald.com. DeaconHerald.com. All right, so we talked about liberation theology, and that's kind of the granddaddy of these movements going on. Um, and, and it had a strong Catholic uh, uh, you know, background. Uh, a lot of, a number of Catholic priests, theologians had helped to come up with it. Um, and they even said that they were look, using Marx the way Thomas Aquinas used Aristotle. Um, the problem with that is Marx is not that good a source. So let's take a look at how some more of that shows up. I think maybe to talk about critical
1: race theory um, what's going on there? Okay, so when critical race theory looks at race, it, it, it defines race as not being about biological distinction or differentiation between, within a species or, or a culture. So it's not about black, white, Asian, Hispanic. It's not about uh, Polish, Caribbean, French, German. Uh, it's a cultural construct this, their wording, cultural construct, where the dominant race exercised dominion, authority, and control over the lesser races. That's their definition of racism. So where does that come from? So uh, if you trace it back, uh, critical race theory comes from critical legal theory from the 1970s, which comes out of critical theory right from the 1920s, mm-hmm. which goes back to uh, uh, Marx, uh, Marxist determinism, Marxist materialism, which mm-hmm. goes back, as we talked about before, the Hegelian dialectic. Um, and, and so the, what I do is I trace it back. Then I have to move it forward to show how critical race theory goes back to this the, the, the roots of these uh, Marxist elements. See,
0: this, uh, I think we're going to find a theme developing here now, because a lot of these things go back to Marx, who... Uh, and to understand these theories, what, what the problem is with it, Marx didn't believe in spiritual reality. Everything was the physical world. And yet they come up with this, these pretend games. It's not what's biological that a scientist can point to by v- objective means that can be checked by other scientists. It's what we create, a very odd combination of being materialist in thought and yet saying that everything is a mental construct.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, when you look at um, uh, the Hegelian dialect, it was usually mostly used in hard sciences, right, where empiricism was, was brought into the fore. But what Marx did along and by, with... And by empiricism, you mean... Um, so, I, empirical study, you have uh, evidence and what um, you, you're, uh, you're able to observe and test and measure. And other you know, people can confirm. Correct. It's talking about, in other words, looking at the real world. Right, correct. So, um, so what Marx did, and actually along with Freud, this has been before Engels, uh, he took that Hegelian dialectic and tried to apply it to more soft sciences like uh, uh, sociology and, and the, the way of looking at the world. And so you have bourgeois, proletariat. So the thesis and antithesis now comes out of the hard sciences into his, he's putting his way of thinking into this and he, that's how you get socialism, for example, mm-hmm. you know? And, and again, what's the what's the the, 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 the the foundation of change? Tension, conflict, struggle, you know? And, I, and so as I'm reading this, I'm like, that's not Jesus. Mm-mm. That's not a Catholic approach to, to solving problems, mm-hmm. to, to, to bringing healing and division. Jesus didn't do that. Um, so, so right away, you see problems of trying to incorporate that kind of thinking um, into a Catholic environment. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't fit. And so, uh, and so moving forward, you see critical race theory. And by the way, it's critical race theory, not critical race fact, although people... Treat it as if it were factual. Um, and so, what I did was, I looked at the major um, progenitors of critical race theory. So, Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, Janine Stefanik, Kimberly Crenshaw. I, I, I read their books because I want to see what they say, what critical race theory, not Absolutely. what this person, what they say. I want to look at their own words. And so, as, I, as I'm looking, I'm seeing language that I've, I've literally never seen before uh, anti essentialism, white over color ascendancy. Uh, intersectionality I'm like wh- wait a minute what 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 is the, what, uh, 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 um, cisgender I like, what is this language so that chapter actually took a long time to write because I tried I was trying to understand what what they mean when they use these words I've never heard before it's almost like they're trying to trying to create their own language um, as a way of expressing their ideology
0: as a matter of fact I don't think it's almost like trying to create their own language <laughs> They are creating their own language. And when I was studying the New Age movement and cults, that was one of the standard techniques used by cults to either create their own languages, you know, their own use of words. It'd be English of sorts, but what the but even if they used regular words, they always would redefine them, and this is what we mean by that word, and Or they would invent new words, and by doing that, they kept a type of control of everybody in the group. Does that apply to you know that that's was my experience in dealing with cults back in the seventies and eighties. Does that
1: approach seem to fit this? Exactly, fits it exactly, exactly. For example, um, they talked about. white over color ascendancy. Um, so there's just this innate understanding that white people just, just think by their very nature are, they think they're superior to, to black people. They even talk about being, uh racist being innate. I said, ooh, hold on. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this contradicts the Catholic understanding of original sin and natural law. I'm like, "This, wait a minute, we, we can't use this. It doesn't work, so I have to show why. Mm -hmm. Not just bashing them and criticizing them, but saying, "Okay, here's what they say, and it may be helpful in some other discipline, but it's not going to help us with with racism. It's not going to work when they talk about um, intersectionality. So they're saying what what determines who you are is this intersection of race, political party, ideology. Uh, So so uh, so who are you? Um, well, I am a uh, Asian, female, uh, same-sex attracted uh, Democrat or whatever. And that, that's who I am. Uh, no, that's not, that's not, it's a so it's an amalgamation of these different things. And I'm thinking from a Catholic perspective, that that's not who we are. So people say, for example, well, you're a black Catholic. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm a Catholic who's black. Are you denying your black identity? Are you denying? It? I'm like, no. Listen, when I die and stand before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be judged, He's not going to ask me how black I am. Yeah. He's going to say, "Did you pick up your cross and follow me? I gave you talents. Where's my 30-fold, 50-fold, 100-fold return on the investment I made in you? That now, this by saying that, do I deny? It? No, I, I'm you know I'm from Barbados. I love my heritage. I love our food, our music, our culture. I still speak our dialect. I love everything about being black. I thank God every day that I'm black, but that doesn't define who I am. What color, what race, uh, who I'm in relationship with does not define me. I am a son of the living God and a brother of Jesus Christ. That was defines who I am. And that's so it's not changing words or inventing words. It's about intimate, personal, loving life, giving communion relationship with Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And that's where I start. And and that is, the, I, I make the argument in the book that's the foundation we need to start with if we're going to seriously address these issues. Forget about the ideologies. What did Paul say? That, you know, uh, uh, th- there's going to be all these uh, people going to come with all these um, different ways of thinking and, and, and you know, uh, lead us into fantasy and all this. That's what's happening now. And we have to get away from that and get back to the scriptures, back to the Word of God, back to the foundations of our Catholic faith. In,
0: this the, the the double thing about it is, as you're pointing out, my real identity is not as Polish American. I again, and I love being Polish American. I love the Polish language, and I certainly miss my mother's food. But you know, and when I go see my cousins, they're fantastic cooks. I, I love it, but that's not who I am. And Jesus is not going to test my Polish grammatical. Uh, abilities when I go to meet him, you know, he's going to ask me a lot of other questions more along the lines he's going to ask you too, you know, what, I gave you the talents, Uh, did you put it in the ground or did you do something with it? So this is, this is the key for all of us. But the other side of it is they seem to recognize it's this fantasy set of constructs, these are all mental constructs you can kind of make up. And, you know, other people can't really objectively observe it. It, It's not in the real world. That's that's one of the other concerns about creating identities
1: that are like Mr. Potato Head, (laughs) but less real. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so it's like this, again, like a patchwork kind of a thing in order to assemble something that's supposed to be real, that's supposed to be... See, what we look at are transcendentals, right? What is true, what is good, what is beautiful. Um, and, and this is something that... In fact, they say that the Christian approach, Derek Bell says the Christian approach is basically worthless. Mm-hmm. So, so if he says that, why are we even thinking, incorporating this in, into our way of thinking? Exactly. You know? And exactly. what it does, it pits people against one another. But you know? see, th- th- I, I am concerned that some Catholics
0: say, "Oh, we can be friends. We'll, we'll, we'll be, we'll be your buddy." It's like the kid on the playground who is on the outs and wants to be friends with the bully. And mm. I can be. I'll, I'll be your friend. I'll, here, you want my lunch money? Wait. Do you need something to drink too? I'll give you that. You know, uh, it, it's that kind of eagerness to join. Something that I'll give up my identity as a Catholic because you you look more cool or you're 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 the big guy in the playground right now. That I think is a mistake. <laughs> Our identity is in Christ. The, the, we, we have just a few minutes. I, we can go on, but I, I want to make sure we also take a look at Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. and then the, again we're, right. we're already talking about the antidotes. But right, go ahead. Right.
1: So. Um... I remember I was during the pandemic, I was asked to do a podcast with uh, a guy named George Manassa in, in Sydney, Australia. And we were going to talk about Black Lives Matter. So George created a meme that just says, Black, Deacon Harold's going to talk about Black Lives Matter. That's all it said. All of a sudden, I got these emails, and people were defriending me on Facebook and stopped following me on, on social media because I thought you were Orthodox. I thought you were with the church, Deacon Harold. What are you doing? All it said was, I was going to talk about Black Lives Matter. It didn't say what perspective I was taking on it. And so I said, look at this. And so he, George contacted me, so I take it down. I said, nope, leave it up there, because now people actually have to listen to what I have to say. See, so the word themselves engender this frustration Is this within but see, people. But that also is
0: a reaction yes. that is just as superficial as the kid on the playground that wants to hang out with the bullies.
1: No. Yeah. Pay attention and learn. So, exactly. So the words black lives matter, there's nothing wrong with those words. That's right. okay? In fact, I even say in the book, I think it's a mistake when people say, well, all lives matter. Well, hold on. I think you have to understand why they're saying black lives matter. Not uh, as, as, as a contradiction to, uh, to all lives matter or, or black lives matter more than anybody else's lives. We're saying, here's a people who have been oppressed, who have, whose voices have not been heard, who are raising their hands and saying, hey, listen to us, pay attention to us, we have something. There's nothing wrong with that, that's fine. What's happened was, because of this leadership vacuum that I talked about earlier with Martin Luther King and, and no one taking his place, you have people now that are trying to fill this void with ideologies that have nothing to do with race at all. Um, and, and so... This Black Lives Matter movement, um, the, again, the movement is the issue, not not the words, and, and what they've done, uh, they're, they're crying, trying to create division. And when you look at what their tenets are, it's not really about race; it's about the destruction of the nuclear family. Bingo. That's exactly what it is.
0: They, I mean, on their website, I screenshot their I did too
1: website. I think they've taken it down. They've taken it down, but I screenshot it, and I incorporate in the book exactly what their ideology is. Now, well, it does, it's not, they took it down, so it doesn't mean that anymore. That's like Planned Parenthood saying, taking abortions off the website. So, well, look, it's not on our website, but they still do abortions. Come on, give me a break.
0: What is it that they said about the nuclear family?
1: Um, they, they have this word called cisgender privilege. We have to destroy cisgender privilege. Which means raise, what? So uh, cisgender means that as a man identifies a male as a woman identifies as a female. Um, and, and that marriage is a man and a woman. That's cisgender privilege. And so what we have to do is tear down cisgender privilege and bring up single moms. So wait, single mom, where's the dads? Elimination of, of male influence and male spirituality. All that's out the window. They have a very strong transgender agenda. In their, and, and that's those so same statements. You know, I'm like, what does that have to do with race? What? All those statements, if you look at them, they have nothing to do with helping to bring people together uh, around the issue of race. Nothing to do with it at all. Their own words. Here's the other side of it, too.
0: Already, 78% of African-American children are born to unmarried parents. And this is something that started in the 1950s. Up until, up through the 1950s census, African Americans had a lower rate of out of wedlock birth than Caucasians because they were committed to Christ and His church. They They weren't Catholic, but they went to church. And the ministers had a strong influence in a really Horrible set of situations, and Jim Crow laws Mm. were still enforced. uh, Woodrow Wilson introduced Jim Crow to the federal government. Woodrow Wilson supported the movie, the first full-length movie on uh, which was about the Ku Klux Klan, and Hollywood designed. The Ku Klux Klan's outfit. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Before, uh, before that movie, Birth of a Nation, the Klan just wore, you know, burlap bags with holes uh, for their eyes. They got classy after Hollywood got in on it. And Hollywood designed this white sheet with the cross and all that. And they said, well, oh, that looks good. We're gonna wear that now. And so the the Klan took their clue from Hollywood. Hmm. Something Hollywood doesn't like to remember, I think. (laughs) Be that as it may, this kind of Jim Crow was uh, was all over the place, and yet it was the African-American church that called the families, this is our strength. And in the 50s, for the first time, African out-of-wedlock birth rate went up to 16%. It had been and it was up to 16 in a decade. And now it's gone from that to
1: 78%. And not only that, disproportionate number of abortions are done on people with color as well. 35% of abortions are,
0: to, are killing African-American children even though they're about 12% of the population. Eighty percent of African American children in New York and Washington are aborted. Eighty percent, though sixty
1: percent of all children. Let me tell, try so, to tell so, me it's so, not targeted. So I'm saying, if that's if that's the case, why aren't they advocating against abortion? That's killing our own people. Where is black entrepreneurship? What about what's going on in Chicago? Black, I, I can't go into the, I, I'm black. I'm afraid of my own people in certain parts of this country. Why is it? Why aren't we fighting for that? Why aren't we fighting for better educational opportunities for, for our people? Why, that, so that's a, why don't we focus on that instead of trying to destroy the family that, that's caused so much of the problems that we're seeing, not only within people of color, but within our whole nation?
0: As I've mentioned a number of times on my shows, of prison inmates are the children of unmarried parents. That's 80% of the white guys, the Hispanic guys, and the black guys. And you want to break down family, that the connection between, the you know what it's like. You're raising a wonderful family, and it's a lot of work, and your role as a dad is essential. It's not an extra. It complements your wonderful wife, Colleen. And the two of you to get, you need each other to raise the kids, not villages, a mom and a dad. And they're, uh, and then one of the sad things, too, about Black Lives Matter, I haven't been impressed with the way they've uh, used the large amounts of money, what, 95 million bucks?
1: Uh, I've not been impressed with the way that it's gotten to the regular folks. Yeah, I think that was something that wasn't anticipated because remember it started as a hashtag, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and all of a sudden it became a movement. And, and so when they started getting all the financial support, I, I think that was something that was not anticipated, you know, and so I think they saw it as an opportunity. And then because we're sinful, human nature, we're, we're, you know, we're we're prone to concupiscence, Sometimes when opportunities like that present themselves, you don't always do the right thing with the resources that people are, are providing for you.
0: And what's odd about that is uh, on one hand, they also professed a Marxist ideology, yes. as I recall. Yep, and I quote that in
1: a the book. They say, and it and
0: say it themselves. As someone whose family lived under a Marxist government in Poland, you know, I, I went over during the communist times and the again after, and um, it just reminds me of how the commissars always did fine, but the people couldn't get food. You know, this the, the, there's this tendency in Marxist societies.
1: Again, and that's the so the common theme in all the three, right? Liberation theology, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter. with This kind of Marxist element in there.
0: Now we have two minutes. You've been already talking about what is essential, namely our identity in Jesus Christ. What would be your last comments about creating a society of love, say with Black Lives Matter and its anti-family and the
1: others? What would be your... Well, the last part of the book is I talk about what we can actually do. And I base it in the parish because that's our family. Yeah. So we're talking about destroying family? No, let's build up the family. Let's come together as parish communities. And I lay out systematically things that we can do from the parish level to build that civilization of love and then take that out into the culture. We don't have to wait for bishops or everybody to tell us what to do. you yeah. know. And I, I, I would make the argument that deacons, quite frankly, because uh, one of the things that Pope Paul VI said that we're supposed to do is to emp- help to empower lay ministry. We can take the lead at the parish level to help people come together to build trust, to build love, and then go out there and show people, you know, the Catholic Church, they could take the lead from us From once. Hey, look what the church is doing. Let's, mm-hmm. let's follow their lead. And in, in a
0: situation like, you know, the breakdown of family and all that, you know, there are a lot of parishioners who are grandpa, grand, grandma age. You can help in these families. We don't want to exclude the families where there, there's not uh, integrity. Bring them in. Exactly. But act as surrogate uncles, aunts, grandmas, grandpas, dads,
1: That's That's moms. what happened to me. When my dad wasn't around, my mom made sure there were other men in my life. Not to take the place of my dad, but to give me an idea of what it's like to be an authentic man of God.
0: And this is, I think, I know knew your mom. She oh, you, was, yes, she you was, did. She loved she, you. She was great. <laughs> she was great. So she did well. Again, we're talking about a really important book. FOR US TO KNOW, BUILDING A CIVILIZATION OF LOVE, A CATHOLIC RESPONSE TO RACISM BY DEACON HAROLD BURKE SIVERS. IT'S AT EWTNRC.COM, ITEM NUMBER 5467. AND YOU CAN ALSO GO TO DEACONHerald.COM TO FIND OUT MORE WHAT HE'S UP TO. DEACON, I'M SORRY WE'VE RUN OUT OF TIME, BUT THANK YOU SO MUCH FOR BEING HERE WITH US. And may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you Deacon Harold and all the other guests that we have only because the network is brought to you by you, keeping us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. We appreciate your support, and with it, we'll be able to pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you.